Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me in today's episode are Amish and Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street analyst team. Today we're talking about what went wrong at Silicon Valley Bank, including how a bank run works and what unique circumstances led to the collapse of the 16th largest bank in the US. We also discussed the implications this may have on the crypto market and Emmett and Anne-Marie pitched their favorite financial stocks. Emmett, Anne-Marie, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. Thanks for having us on today. Um, I just realized about 10 minutes before recording this podcast that this is going out on St. Patrick's Day. So that's why I was scrambling around for a really quick uh, St. Patrick's Day quiz uh, in the two minutes you were paused there in the waiting room. Uh, I have a question for both of you. Where was uh, St. Patrick from originally? Uh, Buzz. Emmet. Good on. You need to buzz. What? He from Wales. He yeah, was, I was Welsh. Say he's Welsh. Yeah. Yeah. His his name was I'm can't even pronounce this. Maywin Suckett was his original name. Um, was March seventeenth St. Patrick's birthday? I'm gonna go with no. Yeah, no. I'd say no. It's it probably like some other pagan holiday that they appropriated something. That they were looking Ireland, forward right? to converting. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, this is a good one. Where was the first St. Patrick's Day parade celebrated? Oh, Buzz, Chicago. Had to be. Yeah. <laughs> no. It, awesome. it was in the States. It was in a place called St. Augustine in Florida in 1601. Whoa. Wow. So there you go. There's some oh, interesting. 1601. Anne Marie, when was the United States established? 1776. So um, we are talking about, so a pre-settled or a pre-United States parade was happening in somewhere in Florida, St. Augustine. That's very early because isn't it Columbus only went to America in 1592. That's, yeah. they're only eight or nine years in there. Yeah, but maybe it's Native the... American. The Native American, I know this is going to sound like a complete made-up story, but the Native Americans and the Irish have a very intertwined history that goes back centuries and i just wonder was there something in it there <laughs> I, I think that's <laughs> after the fact but that is a good story about how the native yeah. americans uh what did they send us money and cattle during the yeah. Yeah, choctaw nation yeah sent over um money and then irish people during because the cherokee nation was hit particularly hard in the very early days of covid and it was like irish people donated over a million dollars worth of mm. um money and support for like medical equipment and food and, and stuff like that yeah so completely off topic i did 23 and me a couple of years ago and it showed <laughs> a genetic breakdown and i'm 99.9 percent potato no question or doubt about it but i am 0.1 of a percent native american and the whole point of the analysis is that it looks at your at uh, your lineage from 400 years ago, where it was kind of predates intercontinental travel, or at least where intercontinental travel was decidedly trickier. So I, you could have knocked me over with a feather when I saw that I was 
uh, 0.1 of a percent uh, Cherokee or, or whatever it was. Probably Genghis Khan, to be honest, but there you have it, 0.1 of a percent. Everything comes back to Genghis Khan. <laughs> who, who was the politician who got, uh, who was saying, claiming they were Native American? Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren, that was the- Yeah, she had, she had that and it was um that that thing you tend to hear people say where she was like oh my grandmother used to say it all the time that we have that someone is, is was native american far back blah, blah blah so she was like i just used to say it but she had used it on like some paperwork and stuff like that when they would ask for her ethnicity she would sometimes put down native american mm-hmm. um i think she had a genetic test run and i i think she either had none or it was so small that they were like it's insignificant um, yeah That's not a, not a, not a good look I'm no. sure calling a Pocahontas, which I thought was very funny at the time. That was it, yeah. yeah. Uh, so there, that's our Paddy's Day quiz. You kind of salvaged <laughs> it because <laughs> I'm not sure if any of it is true. The, the next one was about whether there were female leprechauns, so you can tell it wasn't an Irish-based uh, no. source. Um, but yeah, we'll leave it there for Paddy's Day. And I think we have to get into There's only one story this week that's uh, yeah. on everyone's mind on Wall Street, and that is Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, so the spectacular collapse of the 16th largest bank in America seemed to happen over the space of, what, three or four days last week. Uh, on Friday, the def- the Federal Deposit of Insurance Corporation seized the bank, and then news coming out on Sunday that the government would guarantee deposits held at the bank. Amory, I'm going to give you an awful question mm. to start out. <laughs> and this is, so what happened was basically a traditional bank run on Silicon Valley yeah. Bank. Can you explain it? In very like explain it like I'm five version of how a bank run works. I yeah. suppose. Okay. So basically, like in a very simplistic form, a bank run happens when the trust between the public and a bank collapses very, very quickly. So the way that modern banks work is you deposit your money in, maybe you'll earn a bit of interest on it. Probably not if you're in Ireland, to be completely honest. Nobody here is giving out any interest on savings accounts. But anyway, um, and then the bank makes money by lending your money out in the form of loans, usually over long periods of time. So think like mortgages and car loans and business loans, you know, stuff you just get from your local bank. Um, And banks make profit by earning more in interest than they pay out. Um, But obviously, there's a bit of a, a time discrepancy here because banks maybe lending out your money for decades at a time. But if your money is sitting in your deposit account or your savings account, you have the right to access it at any time. You know, you could go into your bank and close your account tomorrow. Um, but most banks know that if they build trust between consumers and they're viewed as this, as a bank with longevity, most customers are going to leave their money in place for a pretty long time. Because like, when was the last time you suddenly went into your bank and just liquidated your current account? You're like, oh, it's all coming out right now. Um, most people, I'd say, don't really reevaluate their bank ever. And so you could have been banking with the same company for like 20 years. Um, This gives banks the opportunity to lend money out as they only need to provide cash to customers occasionally. They don't need to have like a Scrooge McDuck vault in the back with everyone's gold sitting in neat little piles all labeled and everything. So um, the issue becomes when we start to lose trust in the banks because maybe you hear, oh, other customers are leaving or something's wrong with the bank or whatever. Um, and because most people are aware of the fact that banks have limited cash reserves, everyone just starts to wonder, if I wait too long to take my money out, there's a possibility, you know, there won't be any cash left by the time I get there. You, you remember in like, when you see countries that are about to collapse, you see people trying to take money out of ATMs, and then the ATMs run out of cash. And then they're like, I, I have no way to get my money out of my account. It's locked in this in this, um, in, in this bank that might collapse, and people begin to panic, and then that creates more panic. Um, so that means everyone starts running to their bank as fast as possible, but then other people see everyone else running, and they start to go. Um, and of course, 
the bank has the majority of everyone's money tied up in these long-term loans. So once it completely depletes its cash reserves, it can't give out any more money. And uh, then even more panic ensues. And then the bank becomes insolvent. And then the FDIC rolls up. So uh, that, that, that seems that is a bank run. And that's what happened to Silicon um, a couple days ago. Mm, it, it reminds me of, um, I think it was Matt, Matt Levine's newsletter was using the It's a Wonderful Life example. Yeah, where they're all come looking for their money, and it's like your money is in Joe's house, and your money's in the bridge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a bit different. It's, it's funny for because Silicon interest- Valley Bank, it's like your money is in dog walking for Uber yeah. for dog walking <laughs> <laughs> and electric electric halo vehicles. Yeah, um, and it's it's, uh, it's funny because um, that actually originates like that for, that idea of hey, if I'm holding on to a bunch of cash, I can lend some of it out because people aren't going to come looking. Comes from goldsmiths, like in the 17th century in England. They because they were the only people who had safes. People used to just leave their gold with the goldsmith, and then they started lending out other people's gold because they're like, "This is brilliant. We'll make a bit of money here." But then, obviously, as soon as the news gets out, hey, so and so, your goldsmith is lending out all your gold. Everyone comes running back, and all of a sudden, your goldsmith gets murdered because everyone's like, "Where the fuck's my gold ring?" He gets it gets stuck go. in the smelter. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind of how a bank run works and I suppose the kind of herd mentality involved, I guess, what exactly went wrong with Silicon Valley Bank this last week? Yeah. So there were two main causes that we had. They had too many low interest bonds and then they had a, a fundamental failure to communicate with with their customers, I think, is, is really what did them in. So um, similar to all kind of consumer banks, the way the Silicon Valley Bank was attracting in customers, which their bread and butter customer were startups, companies that were raising venture capital. So that often meant that they were getting these big piles of cash. And then obviously you need a bank account to put that cash in. So Silicon Valley became quite famous for paying pretty decent interest um, to deposits over $250,000. So for many companies in California that, you know, had just gotten their angel investments, they were putting it in Silicon Valley bank accounts. Um, the issue became in 2020, as we can all remember, it was a really glorious time. There was lots of cash flowing around the market. There were lots of IPOs. Lots of companies had money coming in. Um, S, uh, SVB, SVB had the issue that they had too much cash and they weren't lending enough. So then they were like, oh, my God, what are we going to do with this cash? It's not earning us any money. It's not profitable. It's just sitting here on the books. So to fix this, uh, management said, OK, we're going to put it in in bonds in like 10-year, 15-year American bonds. Cool, safe, secure. And at the time, the bonds were paying 1.8% interest, which was good enough to cover the interest that the bank was paying. So they were like, hey, perfect. This is a balanced system. Good to go. The issue became this year, as I'm sure we all know, interest rates have begun to rise. And so suddenly... Uh, Silicon Valley Bank had billions of dollars of bonds that no one wanted. Their market value was dropping because you could go to the treasury and get a bond with a 4.75% interest rate, which is obviously way better. That's like almost four times as much. Um, And so this created what's known as a duration problem, which is when your money is locked up in a long-term asset that is dropping in market value. And that's really horrible for your balance sheet. So within a year, since the start of 2022, SVB SVB's bond portfolio lost $15 billion in value. And it really needed to do something about it because the rating agencies were starting to take notice and they were threatening to downgrade the bank, which as we all know is a huge issue to have this awful public smite to have a rating agency say, hey, we have to downgrade you. You're not doing well enough. So all the management team for Silicon Valley Bank flew to New York and they met with Goldman Sachs, who is a wonderful company. I'm sure it's doing well, as we discussed two weeks ago. And Goldman Sachs said to them, listen, you're going to need to sell some of these these bonds. You need to get out of these low yield bonds 
And yeah, you're going to take a massive loss, but it'll be fine because you're going to buy up some bonds that have much better interest rates. And over time, you'll make this money back. And in the short term, you need to fill this hole. And what you're going to do is you're going to issue stock and all will be well. So the numbers for that were Silicon Valley Bank was going to sell $21 billion worth of low yield bonds, which would create a $1.8 billion shortfall, which then they would release $1.8 billion worth of stock. And perfect. We're all balanced out. And actually, before they did the bond sale, they had already found someone to buy $500 million worth of stock. So they felt pretty good. They were like, hey, there's demand for this. It should be fine. What ended up happening, though, was news of this issue of the bond sale and and the stock issue got out. And within the small business community, all of a sudden, everyone went, oh, my God, our bank might be going insolvent. We should get our money out. And because, you know, they're not a traditional bank with lots and lots of people and lots of customers who are working in a bunch of different areas and maybe someone's mortgage is there or their auto loan or whatever, because the small business community is so small, Mm. they all started talking to one another and they all went, let's pull all of our money out right now. And that meant that we got a bank run, but it was very concentrated and happened really, really quickly. So then by the time that this bond sale was announced and FBD released the stock and all this was happening, the stock dropped by 60% overnight. And then everyone was at the front door basically like, I want all my money back out. I think think it was $42 billion of deposits on Friday. Yeah. So it just just ran out of cash. There we go. Withdrawals. deposits yeah and <laughs> they so, been delighted with some deposits <laughs> so it was by when it was like it was that's this was all announced on wednesday the issue really was that they like tried to hide it in the footnote of a financial update on wednesday and someone somewhere read read it i would guarantee it was one person saw the footnote tweeted it and then everyone went oh my god and by friday the bank had been taken over by uh, the federal deposit insurance corp and that was the end of it yeah. Did management highlight, like, uh, it was like, oh, well, retrospectively, we didn't take into account the herd mentality of yeah. Silicon Valley startups and their founders and how yeah. in in that in that like in that sense there, they all thought as one. It was almost a hive mind. So if mm-hmm. one person gets spooked, it's like you just have to have to get out of the way. It's a stampede. So it is it is really interesting. Yeah. And like when we talk about that, those are silicon valley banks customers um Mm -hmm. so what's the follow-up for them and then maybe for people listening what's the follow-up for their their investors as well yeah so luckily for customers of silicon valley bank federal regulators have backed all of the deposits so they're going to give them their money back which is unusual because traditionally um if you've ever seen a commercial for any type of bank or financial product in the united states they have that really quick um terms and conditions that they read out the end that's like fdic guaranteed up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars um, so traditionally, if th- if this had happened in the past, every customer would only get back a quarter of a million dollars. Um, the Fed has decided they're going to cover absolutely everything because they have determined that the shortfall of all of these massive American companies losing access to their cash will be worse for the economy than just like spending this money right now. Um, yeah, unfortunately, like pay- payroll was a big issue that everyone yeah, was kind of said. Exactly. Some companies were like, we're going to miss payroll next week like this is an instantaneous issue so obviously like the decision was made it was probably the correct one um unfortunately for investors of silicon valley bank you will not be getting compensated in any way um interestingly president biden he gave a press conference recently where he was discussing it um and he basically said listen if you're an investor you understand the risk of of buying a stock and at this time you know like this is something that this is a possibility that you would have known about um and then he said uh he said something in front of me, he said that is the way under capitalism or, or something like that. It was kind of a philosophical moment that he had. Um, 
but I would say for most investors, so long as you weren't exclusively holding Silicon Valley stock, so, so, so hopefully you had some kind of diversification within your portfolio, you probably are much happier that they have opted to bail out or at least guarantee the money of customers because an awful lot of like big name companies, big name stocks were there. So Roku had 25% of its cash there. Buzzfeed had a hundred percent of its cash there. Bill.com had 12% there. Roblox had 5%. Vimeo had about $250,000 there. So I would say it would be much more detrimental for most investors to think overnight Roku was going to lose access to tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of cash that it most definitely is going to need for expenses, but also just like future innovation. Um, so, yeah, I, I know it can be difficult for people to say, well, you know, this bank screwed up and now all of these companies are getting bailed out and regular people who own the stock aren't. But I think overall and in a kind of long term view set, it's 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 for the best. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you another awful question. I started with one, so I may as well finish with one. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think we might have touched on it a small bit, but like the general consensus consensus from what I picked up anyways, is that the issues that caused the bank run at Silicon Valley Bank aren't seen elsewhere in the financial system. So I suppose what's kind of unique about this situation and yeah. the real concern is w- why it won't take grip of the rest of the banking mm-hmm. system in America. Yeah. As we kind of said, like the, unfortunately, like the thing that made Silicon Valley Bank so appealing, both as, as an investment and as a banking partner for um, small and up and coming startups like was the fact that they were a dedicated bank for that. But that obviously exposes them to an awful lot of risk because it means that they're concentrated in almost a single sector. Um, Whereas a larger bank is unlikely to face such a concentration within a single group. Um, So I'm sure that, you know, if there were to be an incident where small businesses all got shaken up and they decided to withdraw their money from the Bank of America, for example, there are so many other like ways in which the Bank of America is bringing in cash, it would probably be okay. Yeah. I think the like most you imp- can't Peter Thiel and you know why incubator can't send out an email that sends yeah. billions of dollars running from your account in twenty seconds. Like, yeah. So um, I think in that sense, really the most important thing that the U.S. government needs to handle right now um, is is the climate of withdrawing money because I do think that the general public has kind of gotten a sense of this. They've kind of gotten a whiff of what's happened. Anytime you see a headline that says a bank is collapsing, everyone just gets horror flashbacks to 2008. They're like, oh my God, I need to get all my money out of my bank. Um, and so right now, I think the most important thing is rebuilding that trust. And that is actually something the Fed is doing. Um, it's happening almost internally. Um, and, and what they're trying to do is, is they're aware of the fact um, that many banks have this duration issue. You know, Silicon Valley Bank was heavily, heavily exposed in this way because they had so much cash coming in in 2020. But if we think back to 2020, a lot of individual people also had excess cash because they weren't going on vacation or, you know, for the first six months of COVID, maybe they weren't making big, big expense, big expensive purchases or they weren't buying homes, that sort of thing. So a lot of regular people actually saved a lot of money too and put it into banks. And so, these bonds do exist on other people's books. And so the Fed has determined right now that the best thing that they can do is just discourage the banks from trying to offload the the bonds. They're going to say to them, hey, just hold on to it. If it's a 10-year bond, just hold on to it and cash out in 10 years. We know the interest rates are bad right now. We're really sorry about that. But please, you know, don't panic anybody. And so what they've decided to do 
is that banks can pledge their assets and returns for loans equivalent to the original value of the asset. Um, and and that's that'll happen. I think it's, they're doing that for the next year. So hopefully that should cool off the market a bit, that people feel less panicked. It'll help stabilize the banks a bit. Um, the flip side of that is, unfortunately, if it doesn't work and withdrawing continues to a very high degree, and a, bun- a bunch of banks begin to fail, um, it could cripple the U.S. government with an awful lot of debt that it will take on for no reason. Um, but so far, things seem to be okay, particularly when... There seemed to be an awful lot of panic online the Friday that this went down and people were saying there's going to be a line at my bank tomorrow morning. And then yeah. Monday rolled around of, and it was kind of doomsayers of, when they're on Twitter. Yeah. People were Bill, like, this Bill is Ackman the end of through the form, got involved. Yeah. And then like I then saw a lot of people on Monday morning were taking photos of banks of like just their general everyday bank on the street and being like, well, there's no one outside. So I think we might be OK. Um, so for right now, everything, everything seems to be OK. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah. Emmett, um, I'd like to see your opinion of this because you've been an investor for so much longer and, and you've kind of seen stuff like this happen before. You've, you've traditionally avoided bank stocks in the past um not not 100 percent, but uh for the most part why why is that yeah definitely i've often said that broadly speaking i avoid pharma fashion and finance uh not only because they rhyme but because events like the one we saw last week just appear to happen in those particular industries instantly they can just uh, if you're in pharma fashion or finance the show can end way faster than even the ceo predicted like for example in pharma a cutting edge treatment fails to achieve fda approval fashion changes by the season and somehow banks appear to fail overnight it's happened over and over and over again and what's kind of interesting is that the most senior people in these organizations too often don't have a clue that this trouble is on the horizon, or at the very least, they can't manage the risk appropriately when they become aware of it. I read an interview, it must have been, it must have been 20 years ago, between Bill Mann and the CEO of an orphan drug company. I think it was called Transchirotic or something like that uh, for Hunter Syndrome. I was an investor in it, actually. Um, very interesting business. And it was a very interesting interview. And the boss of the business said that the people down in the lab with the white coats are the ones who are on the leading edge of information and on the leading edge of hunches about how it's all going to go down. Now, when you look at banks, particularly in the US where there's loads of banks, uh, as we've just seen institutions go down overnight. And wait to hear the statistic, guys. As of September uh, 2022, 
Okay, I'm going to give you a guess. How many commercial banks were in America uh, in Q3, Q4 of 2022? Have a guess. How many banks exist in America? Exist in America. Not branches, but brands, companies. There's loads. Because isn't there like, you know, Arkansas, Farmers, Credit Union? Yeah, there's a lot of regional banks. Okay, Anne-Marie, give me a guess, Anne-Marie. Um... Like like six hundred. Uh, Mike, guess. Yeah, I go four hundred. There's four thousand one hundred and fifty-seven <laughs> commercial banks in the U.S. as at September 30th, 2022. Wow. All of which are insured by the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Is that what it's mm-hmm. called, Amory? Yeah, they're all they're all insured by FDIC. And at that time, at the end of September last year, they had about $23, $24 trillion in assets. When you come to a tiny little island like this one, Ireland, it sounds inconceivable that there's over 4,100 banks of all shapes and sizes, of which, by the way, 600 of them are floated mostly on the NASDAQ as it happens. And then I I think about something like 550 uh, banks are floated on the NASDAQ and the remaining 50 I wouldn't go to Ireland as an example for banking, Emmett. No, uh, go on. But, you know, that's a good point, but the, the, the analogy is strong because you, you, let's get on to that. So, you know, despite my no pharma, uh, no fashion, no finance rule, I'm actually am invested in banks um, and I have invested in banks for years, but it is trickier to find something exceptional. Several, several have failed. And as you said, Mike, here in Ireland, and in most cases, not all, mind you, but in most cases, they're run by honest people trying their best to navigate the complex world of hedging, lending, bonds, interest rates, all the cogs that make up a successful bank. And as Anne-Marie explained, that's effectively what happened at, at Silicon Valley Bank. So this is one industry that time has proven you can see spontaneous combustion. And then, by the way, I know you didn't ask, but when you introduced crypto, and its relationship on banks, um, there's a, there's a whole new level of of um, of complexity and risk brought into it. Um, Silvergate, which is one of the banks that went bust there, last yeah, you week, could say this was the the first domino to fall, maybe. Exactly. So Silvergate, like its story, uh, you're right, it predates the Silicon Valley Bank story by a good 24 hours, I think. But anyway, <laughs> it, it catered to institutional investors who are looking to transfer government issue uh, traditional or fiat currency to crypto exchanges. Now, I don't care who you are or what you study. That's really specialist stuff right there. So by taking fiat deposits and routing them through the Silvergate, um, I think it was the Silvergate Exchange Network, Silvergate grew its crypto-related deposits more than sixfold in a period of two years. So it had something like $2 billion in early 2020 to around $13 billion in 2022. And after the collapse of FTX in November, its customers began to draw down deposits, which Silvergate honored initially by liquidating assets and on its balance sheet and doing what banks do. And then it tapped in to the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco for a credit line. Then in early March, they delayed their 10K filing. I think they blamed the auditors. And one week later, uh, wound up in the FDIC receivership. And the crazy thing, and the crazy thing is that before Silvergate's demise, 
Coinbase moved their banking from them to another crypto-friendly bank, um, uh, like a signature bank, which was the third biggest failure in US history. So, you know, I was reading a piece this morning by Sean Keyes, uh, who I interviewed here on Stock Club, as you remember, and he writes for The Currency. And he said, society does a lot of things that are fundamentally risky, like flying planes across the ocean. Silicon Valley Bank blew up because it took irresponsible amounts of risk in the pursuit of profit. Most banks take a responsible amount of risk and make a profit without leaving them wide open through a run on the bank. Their capital stack doesn't get wiped out by an admittedly fast rise in interest rates. So to your question, I don't invest in banks, but I do, but I try, I, I, I have an aversion to them, a distaste them as I do when I see a company in fashion uh, or pharma. Uh, and that's why it's just so complex. The, the woman or man in the top office in the corner with the most expensive suit very often doesn't realize that they're in deeper trouble than anyone can imagine. I was going to say, I have a good FDIC um, insurance story, which is, um, do you guys know the, the basketball player Giannis? No, he was. Uh, oh yeah, he was, yeah. Go on. He was MVP of the NBA like in 2019, 2020. He's Greek, um, and he obviously gets paid a phenomenal amount of money because he's a very good basketball player. But um, he heard about the FDIC thing. Oh, they only insure money up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So he has fifty bank accounts. Oh, he split his money wow. up and put it two hundred fifty in each of the accounts because he was like, I'm, I have to make sure it's all insured. Yeah, he still has four thousand. Uh, what is it? Nearly four thousand banks he can. <laughs> he's got. He's yeah, got choices. Plenty of space. Like in yeah, Ireland, I, we have th- we have three banks in Ireland. You'd be like, well, can't make more than seven hundred fifty thousand dollars ever. I read that and I was amazed, and then it kind of clicked. I was like, oh, he was born in. Uh, he was raised in Greece when all that kicked yeah. off. <laughs> it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Um. But Emmett, I want to talk back to 2007, 2008 and the great financial crisis. And I, I maybe don't want to make comparisons, but I want to see how it stacks up between Silicon Valley Bank and, as you mentioned, Signature Bank as well. And I think Silvergate maybe doesn't really mm. fall into this because it's so specific. But mm. how this situation compares to Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers back in the day? Well, as far as I can understand, and that is not too far, this is not a financial crisis. And I think that the profile of the failed banks this time is quite different and hopefully far more contained. For one thing, the 2008 financial crisis was caused by assets such as mortgage-backed securities that were very difficult to value which made it hard for banks you know, to determine how much they were worth. Um, this time, however, the assets causing the trouble for banks are US Treasury and bonds, which are very easy to value and very easy to sell. So you can get a read yeah. on, on your bank's value almost to the dollar and the speed of access to that liquidity. So that's, that's one differentiating factor. Um, and it also, I suppose, makes it like intervention by the government much more effective in this case. Um, and it has, as, as we said, it's taken measures. And this time around, uh, the US federal government stepped in early to guarantee all the uh, customer deposits and restore confidence in the US banking system. And take to, it's taken the moves that we've already discussed. Now, apparently, and this is, this is very interesting as I was trying to get a, a read on the whole situation for, for this podcast and, and I suppose an original angle because it's hard to find one at the minute. Apparently, analysts 
are looking at the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s and, and early 1990s as a better model for how this current crisis may play out. And some of our listeners will recall that savings and loans, or SNL, were like banks, but they specialized in accepting savings deposits and making mortgage loans. And in the 1980s, when they were deregulated in America, uh, they started to make uh, riskier investments with depositors' money. And those investments went sour and S&Ls found themselves at a loss just as the Fed was raising interest rates. And that meant that many, many borrowers couldn't afford to pay back their loans. So you can kind of start to see parallels. And as a result, the SNLs are whole loaded and started to fail, and the government had to step in and bail them out. So th apparently, economically, the parallels between that chapter in the late 80s and early 90s, kind of 1991, are far, far stronger. And the economic theory being applied now is more a reflection of what was seen there in the late 80s. And I was reading a note from an expert in Society General on, on Monday, and he said that if the S&L crisis is a model of what happens next, we're closer to the peak in rates than the market previously thought, meaning that the Federal Reserve could soon stop or reduce interest rate heights to fight inflation. Uh, and it's also possible, he said, that the US economy will slip into a mild recession within the next year. So there you go. Another thing we can look forward to. Yay. That's mm. good. Mm. Yeah. Um, I would also say that um, if any of you have seen that movie, The Big Short, like a lot of the mm. fundamental failure that happened in 2008 was the rating agencies were not like we're not doing due diligence to effectively rate the packages of mortgages that they were bundling together and selling. Um, but interestingly, in this instance, it was the rating agencies that alerted um, Silicon Valley Bank that there was an issue because it was the threat of them being downgraded that caused them to deal with the bond issue. So in some ways, you can say, actually, the, the, the thing that failed us in 2008 is the, is the thing that caught the bank in this instance. However, there what there is a some deregulation that probably could have um, you know, we probably shouldn't have done that would have prevented this, which was after 2008, they passed the Dodd-Frank legislation, which was how basically attempting to rein in all the big banks. And initially, it meant that you there's an oversight threshold, which basically allows the, the government to have a good look into your books. And it used to be that if you had $50 billion on your books, the government was allowed to come in and have a nice poke around. But under the Trump administration in 2018, that threshold was raised $250 billion, which the banking industry was absolutely thrilled about. Um, but it did mean that Silicon Valley Bank, since 2018, has completely flown under the, the nose of regulators because they only had $209 billion on their books. Um and so now, actually, there is a big push um, by Elizabeth Warren, interestingly, who we mentioned at the top, is she has been very famous yeah. for um, Emmett's, banking legislation. Emmett's long-lost relative. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, she is now pushing for them to reinstate the, the legislation that came in under Dodd-Frank of saying, hey, if we had had a $50 billion limit here, we would have caught this much earlier and probably could have been prevented altogether. Mm. Like, I'm never going to pretend to be anywhere near an expert in banking regulation and accounting and everything but surely the management at silicon bank silicon valley bank were seeing this happen straight away do you know what i mean like as in i think almost half their assets were in 10-year bonds at what 1.8 percent yeah you know pretty quick when investing uh, when interest rates are going up and up and up that this is becoming devalued every time the fed meets uh, like how you can let that get so far out of hand so quickly mm -hmm. just seems like some serious I don't know, mismanagement, I suppose. 
Um, but yeah, so Emmett, I just want to finish out this piece by talking about probably the two most affected um, groups or cohorts, we'll say. And they are Silicon Valley startups on one side and then smaller regional banks on the other. Um, so the smaller regional banks, the 4,631 you mentioned there, are absolutely getting hammered in the stock market and incredibly volatile for the last week. Um, do you believe the loss of investor trust here is is deserved or do you think it's an overreaction? Well, on the day the news broke last week, it was all consuming in my world. And not only as someone who watches and invests in US stocks for a living, but because I want to start up with a small account in Silicon Valley Bank. We don't actually do our major banking with them, but for that reason, for those two reasons to begin with, I was very interested. And our venture investor, my Wall Street venture investor, the Motley Fool, was sending advice and game plans. My Twitter stream was 100% entirely flooded with opinions and analysis. And of, of course, I threw in my tuppence worth. Um, you know, you're now the, it, it you're, in like, the, you're in the founder WhatsApp group being like, guys, you got to get our money. <laughs> yeah, I was. I mean, I was getting text messages from fellow founders from all over the world. I got a text message from Shane Kern, the founder of Evervault, saying how you, how you fixed. And I was talking to several other founders of bigger businesses and all of a sudden we're all asking each other, are we in trouble? And so my world was completely, as I said, consumed by it. Um, however, what really surprised me, what actually knocked me sideways, that the national broadcaster here in Ireland, which is called RTE, uh, didn't mention it on the main evening news, which is the kind of, we have a nine o'clock news on the TV, as you guys well know, six o'clock and nine o'clock news on TV. That's the cornerstone of reporting in Ireland. And it had absolutely no mention. And, and I remember I was speaking to my wife about it. She said, oh, you're, you're living in a bubble. And I, I was like, just totally incredulous that this couldn't be mentioned. Uh, and then even, I was even more surprised that not one centimeter of ink was given given to it in in Sunday's Times or the Times of London Irish edition. Um, I mean, this was the second and third largest bank failures in American history, and possibly the fastest. I don't know, and it was unmentioned for me. This was beyond strange, uh, and I suppose news people know news. And apart from the fact that there's possibly a small audience for U.S. banking disasters on this side of the Atlantic, <laughs> over the weekend the FDIC process kicked in and, and the fire, I suppose, didn't rage as un uncontrollably as it had on Friday. So what's earth shattering news over here, uh, over there, or indeed over here, doesn't necessarily merit one second of coverage over here. Now that I have to admit did change last night where I noticed a TV show here in Ireland called Primetime that again, most listeners on this side, uh, on the island, but no, and they did a specific piece on Silicon Valley Bank like a week after uh, the news broke. Anyway, to your question, a loss of investors trust, probably, but we need banks. And I guess to your story there, Anne-Marie, about the basketball player who <laughs> distributes his cash um, across whatever number of hundreds of banks, 250 banks, I think you said, like, uh, while that's probably verging on paranoia, uh, I guess there there is a lesson there for founders to think harder about where they place their working capital and should it all sit in a single institution. And Mike, you mentioned at the top of the podcast about groupthink and, and um, why does my Wall Street have an account with Sil Silicon Valley Bank? We've only a couple of thousand dollars in there. I'll tell you why. We were scared about not having one. It was like, what are we going to mm. miss? What what is it that we don't see? Because the world, I mean, everyone is Silicon Valley Bank. You got, you got VC, you're starting a startup. It's not going to make money for years. You got to go to Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> and that's why 
we have a bank again with Silicon Valley Bank. I wrote to its most senior guy here in Ireland. Uh, uh, this is actually going to sound very catty. I wrote to the most senior guy in Ireland saying, if there's anything I can do to help you, uh, please just say. And I reflected after I clicked send. I don't ever recall getting an email like that from Silicon Valley Bank. But anyway, there you go. Uh, so, yeah, I do think there is a lot of stuff. There's certainly, I think we all have to take a lesson and... Um, and and I don't know a loss of trust. I guess so, but I think it's just verging on naive to fully trust any financial institution. You kind of do so with the fingers crossed under the table. Mm, I think it probably exposes that herd mentality you've mentioned so many times now as well. Where you were kind of saying it, well, why did we have money there? Because everyone else did, you know. So yeah, yeah. somewhat of, of an indicator of the kind of culture of startups changing. You know, after we mm. kind of went through, it was like we reached we reached absolute peak IPO startup cash everywhere culture in 2020. And now we're mm. on the way down and everyone's like, Jesus, we all need to be profitable. What's going on? And mm. this does seem to be a further indication of that is we all need to be a bit more responsible. There's not as much cash floating around for for you to start your smoothie company anymore. Yeah. The one thing I would say, and this is probably was probably already happening but um access to capital for startups now how yeah. how does this affect that in the long run and that's obviously going to play out in the years to come but i think it could mm -hmm. have a big impact but mm -hmm. yeah um we're moving on then and just to give you your quickly weekly reminder if you haven't already to sign up for our newsletter charging and fearless this is a free email in which you receive a brand new stock which every week we promise it'll be the most valuable 30 seconds you spend in your inbox this week's email is carrying the subject line a time-tested cash cow so uh mailbag i want to discuss something emmett which you you mentioned on twitter uh so you published a quick Twitter thread on Friday as this was all kind of playing out. Um, for those interested, that's at Emmett L. Savage. Um, and you described it as the first major bull case for Bitcoin I've, ob I've observed since it entered mainstream consciousness. So could you expand on that? Oh, thanks, Mike. Um, <laughs> this is this is a bit harsh. You can call out for uh, Mike, tweets. Mike, I was in the, in the Twitter mosh pit. I was in the Twitter mosh pit. You know, uh, as uh, everybody goes to a metal gig and, you know, the mosh pit is where you just can't really think for too long. But yeah. I was in the Twitter mosh pit. You and were I trying to keep get, up with Bill Ackman and Jason. I didn't get Bill too Ackman's. academic. I didn't get too academic. So I'm going to double down on that right now. Well, my ladybird understanding um, is as follows. So Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, all served cryptocurrency companies in the U.S., and a reminder to our listeners from your favorite crypto idiot about what a stable coin is. Um, it's a type of cryptocurrency where the value of the digital asset or the coin is supposed to be pegged to a reference asset, which can either be fiat money or traditional money, exchange traded commodities like precious metals or industrial metals, or indeed another cryptocurrency if you want to multiply the price, risk of, uh, the price of a Costco hot dog. <laughs> that's not and going anywhere completely stable but if we if we focus on fiat fiat backed stable coins the value of this type of, of stable coin is based on the value of a banking currency or a banking currency i mean say and it's held by a usually a third party financial entity and in this setting uh like the custodian of the backing asset is crucial for the stability of the stable coin. Okay, if you can follow that. So 
bear with me. Uh, as I said, I was in a mosh pit. So the USD coin is the stable coin pegged to the US dollar, as you might guess. And each USD coin is backed by a, uh, by a dollar or some kind of dollar denominated assets with equivalent value held in the accounts uh, in these various institutions. So they, the USD coin, held $3.3 billion or about 8% of the reserves at Silicon Valley Bank. And USD, the stable coin, began to, what they say, depeg shortly after the news of the exposure broke. So the value of one USDC or US dollar coin fell as low as 88 cent before uh, the FDIC intervened and it went back up to a dollar. So both the banks to cryptocurrencies and for a fleeting moment, the stable coin to which they're pegged, they both wobbled, right? Everything wobbled, the whole earth shook. Um, and uh, honestly, that's not stable enough for me. And what I tweeted was akin to an empty can rattling, even louder than I'm rattling now. I figured that the big, the big picture, Careful. in the big, in the big too much there. I have, I have always said, just if you want an opinion on crypto, keep going. But the reason I tweeted that was that in the big picture of a company's assets, it should be something that's uh, less attached to the decisions made of management teams in world banks. So when all of these startups money went into Silicon Valley Bank, no founder or VC thought in the, the management team of this bank we trust, but that's actually what they're doing. And I'm so, when I tweeted that, which was one sentence, thanks a million, Mike, I thought, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I thought, well, you know what? That's kind of a case for Bitcoin. Now, is it? I don't know. Is Bitcoin pe pegged uh, to a stable coin? I don't know. I have lots of experts in my life who would tell me, but I just figured, there is possibly an angle here where we can kind of truly go to a decentralized world. Oh, look, well, I keep talking, Mike, because I'm really yeah, trying I think to cut you off. Sorry. I'm, I'm sorry I said Anton. <laughs> oh, my. I'm going to delete that tweet now. <laughs> it is. No, no, in fairness. We just start a new, a, new, a new segment every week. We pull up a tweet that Emin has put out and we make him explain it. And by the way, do you ever see like in a comedy show or whatever where they kind of, uh, the listener, you can see their eyes glaze over and then it just cuts to a soft cut where you five minutes later the talker's still going and yeah. they're twiddling with their nails. I could see that happen with you guys. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> um all right let's get into uh elevator pitches so seeing as we've been talking about financial institutions for an hour now um we may as well stick with them so i just want to pitch you uh i want both of you to pitch me your favorite financials uh amaria start with you yeah mine is kind of a a go between between all the banks to be honest it's a stock i've been talking about for a long time because i think i found them prior to ipo um, that was over a year and a half ago now. And I remember I found them because I listened to a really wonderful interview with their CEO and I was very impressed by him. And I thought that he had like, I thought he, he had a, he was very experienced in the field, but also he just had such a good plan and, and had executed things so well. And I was very impressed by him, but, um, the company is Blend Labs, which is B-L-N-D, um, for their ticker. They are absolutely in the gutter since i looked at them initially they're down 75 percent 
uh, in the last year. Their market cap is now only $350 million, which is very tiny, um, probably smaller than a, a, a stock that we would consider. But it, essentially what they do is, th- is they make a white label software that sits in between consumers and banks for the vast majority of financial products. Um, I didn't know this, but basically, when you obviously when you apply for a mortgage or even a current account or a savings account or any of those type of things, um, that there's an awful lot of data that has to be processed not only by the bank but by regulators. Um, and the way that it used to be done was you would fill out all this paperwork and hand it over to the bank, and then it had to all be verified manually, which is obviously a huge headache. And more importantly, for security purposes, an awful lot of that data would then get siloed into the single product. So even if you'd been a bit with a bank for like 10 years, you would have to do income verification again, even if you, you know, if you got an auto loan with Bank of Ireland, and then you went back to them five years later to get a mortgage, they would have to do a bunch of verification again, even though they'd done that previously. And so this is essentially a software solution to that that automates a lot of that super annoying backend stuff the banks have to do, um, just improves data storage. It's all cloud-based. And um, the the CEO essentially said that he wanted to create a world in which people just had a better understanding of the financial products that would be offered to them. And he felt the only way to do that was to kind of automate this process. He wanted a day when you could go into your banking app at any time and just click a button and it would be able to tell you how much you would be approved for a mortgage for at any time. Um, Cause this guy basically said that the most important asset that any person will ever own is their own home. And so he was like, I want to empower people. So every single day they, they could check it and be like, okay, I'm getting a little bit closer to a point where I could buy my own home. And I thought that was very admirable. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, though, that means that an awful lot of their product base is is tied to the mortgage market. That's their most popular product. And they have really great relationships. They have something like the 30, 30 of the 100 largest banks in the United States have signed on with Blend Labs. And most importantly, they have Wells Fargo, which is like the second or third largest mortgage broker in the United States. But they also have big names like U.S. Bank, Elements Financial, Lenar Mortgage, and Open Door actually was with them um, for their mortgage process. Um, but you know, last couple of quarters have not been pretty. The mortgages as they're as they're by and large their 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 biggest product. Um the revenue from that segment is down sixty-five percent year over year, which is obviously oh, punishing, but it's great because we are beginning to see their other products build out and 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 be successful. So um on their consumer banking and marketplace segment, revenue came in at $15.3 million, which I know is very small when we're traditionally talking about much larger companies, but that was an increase of 132%. So it is showing me that even when this environment is tough for their most famous product, they are continuing to innovate and push new products uh, into their existing customer base. And what I found very impressive every time I read up on this was they were, it's taken them like five or six years to develop this software product and they're constantly reiterating on it, improving it, making it better. And from a number of analysts I had read from, they basically said, listen, no bank in its right mind, particularly in America where there are so many banks, is going to actually make this software in-house. So once they're signed on to Blend Labs and it's been integrated into their system, they're not going anywhere. And more than likely, they're just going to upsell and cross-sell to these players. Um, it's It just seems like a very nice, you know, 10 to 20-year play here. They seem to be have a great first mover advantage and really kind of digitizing within banking is something that has to happen. If the banks don't begin to digitize, they're going to get disrupted. Um, so I've always been very impressed by the company. I love the management team, high insider ownership right now. It's currently trading at one X forward revenue, which is, you know, that's, that's pretty low. And so it's something I definitely will be keeping an eye on the next kind of um, six months and continue to kind of look at it on a product to product breakdown to make sure they're, they're strengthening across the board and not quite so dependent on the mortgages, which will probably be weak for the com- next several years, I would say. Yeah. I, I never realized that, uh, cause you talked about this business before, how closely attached it was to the mortgage, uh, industry. Yeah. And it, it was always a big thing. Cause when they IPO'd, 
they had had rapid, rapid growth, like for for five or six quarters, but it was largely tied to yeah that big mortgage push. And they'd also done a um, not overly expensive acquisition, but they had picked up yeah Title three six five, which also is a mortgage backed product, is meant to automate um, certain steps when you because obviously when you get a mortgage, it's an awful lot of paperwork. That company also was automating um, a huge amount of the back end stuff for that. So it was a great acquisition. It was smart, fit into their product suite really really well. But unfortunately, it just happened to back up to when mortgages began to decline. So they've had to take a pretty big goodwill impairment from the acquisition. It was $57.9 million they've had to write off there. So um, yeah, it's a difficult time for them to be in such a market, but like the home buy market isn't going anywhere. And if this is the, if this is the product to beat, you know, it's definitely a company to keep an eye on. Yeah. Good on. Okay. Emmett, what do you got for us? That's a tough act to follow, Anne-Marie. Well, I'm going to pitch just one of the 600 or so banks that are floated. <laughs> one of the few I own shares in, and it's SoFi. And um, I think explaining to a Californian, for example, who SoFi are is like explaining to an Irish person what Brennan's bread is. But for the sake of our Irish listeners, SoFi is a really beautiful neo-bank. It's app-based. Its products are built around their members. And in, in their own words, they say so that, their members have the tools they need to take control of their financial future. And they have a it's a philosophy-based business. They are all about attacking your debt with a plan, always having a safety net, putting your money to work and saving for retirement and, and for your retirement goals. And uh, the reason that everyone in California, for example, knows SoFi is because of SoFi Stadium, which is a like 70,000 seat uh, stadium in Inglewood, uh, LA. Have you ever been, Anne-Marie? Um, I've been to Los Angeles. I've never been to that stadium, but it only it's became new. a SoFi Stadium a couple of years ago, right? I think mm. it's a new build. Oh, it's a new build. Oh, it's yeah. not even. I think it replaced like the Coliseum. Was that the old stadium in LA? Coliseum is UCLA or USC's stadium, but there USC, were NFL yeah, teams that had to play there when, yeah, something was constructed because the, a bunch of teams the moved LA, to LA. The region. LA Raiders used to play in the Coliseum. That was it. Yeah. yeah. Ah, sorry, Emma, we're getting no, that's good. <laughs> we're getting tangent. Have this, uh, sub podcast, but anyway, the <laughs> so so far is about one point four billion dollars in cash and cash equivalents. It has about seven billion in deposits, and it's maintained to uh, it's it's obliged to maintain ten percent of its deposits in a in a available for withdrawal as discussed so about 700 720 million dollars is acquired they've 200 percent of that um and they also have a warehouse with a five billion dollar capacity and one of the reasons i really like sofi is that the ceo uh, anthony noto bought another million dollars worth uh, of the shares last week um and this follows two purchases he made in december uh, and and I think those two December purchases came to amount to about seven million dollars. So altogether, he's invested a very large percentage of his personal worth in the business that he is running. He has an impeccable track history. He used to be the CFO of Twitter back in the days when Twitter was a performing business. Um, and uh, by the way, not to, I'm just about to drop a name. He followed me on Twitter, so I was a bit starstruck, and I followed him back. In fact, I'm going to tag him on the tweet when this podcast goes live and I'm going to fire up a bromance. You watch this space. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, into existence, so he's a class leader. He great, did great work in 
Twitter, I think he's doing great work in SoFi. Like every financial institution, it's a rocky road. It's a zigzag. And there's more kind of detail in the story. But it is a business, I believe. And I think it's one of the few SPACs uh, over the last two years that actually I think is going to flourish into a far bigger and better business than it is today. Yeah. And hopefully those 7 billion in deposits aren't made up of dog walking uh, startups. (laughs) I actually have a feud with SoFi, interestingly enough, where... I was opening a savings account recently and I obviously did very in-depth research to find the best interest rate. And SoFi has very high interest rates on high yield mm-hmm. savings accounts. I was like, this is great. I open a little SoFi account, get a savings account up and running. And then I learned after already opening the account and going through all the paperwork and everything that I could only secure that interest rate if I had my paycheck direct deposited to, to a SoFi account, which I didn't want to do. And I was upset because I... It probably was in the terms and conditions that I obviously didn't read, um, but I was upset so, because I didn't find that out like until a, after the account had been opened. So, so very basic uh, exchange, something for another. Yep. They yeah. clearly so, want you uh, to set it up as your main bank account, like. Yeah. Well, they know they know how to lock you into customer lifetime value. I mean, when I was when I start on day one when I started in college. There was a big long line outside AIB, which had a branch on campus, Salad oh, Irish yeah. Bank, and it gave a fiver. If you open a bank, if they if you open a bank account, uh, they put five five yeah. pounds into it, and it was a queue of students opening the account, and then another queue who'd walked around the corner to uh, to withdraw the five or to bring it straight across <laughs> into <laughs> the, the college pub, which was and that's exactly what my buddies and I did. We all joined the queue, opened an account, walked around the corner, took out the five or went into the bar and drank it, and um, to this day. All of my personal banking, all of my Wall Street <laughs> banking, all of my family's banking has all gone through AIB because of that fiver. And I've wow. thought to myself, there's 30 years, uh, let's see, I started college in 92, there's 31 years of customer lifetime value and all likelihood the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> and I think that the SoFi guys, they're playing a similar hand with you, Emery. It's like, okay, give us yeah. your, you know, you want the high interest? Just yeah, put your, yeah. Put your yeah. paycheck in here. Yeah. yeah, and then I ended up. What ended up happening? And then then had to open another se- second savings account with the second best interest rate, which was unfortunately Goldman Sachs. Oh, so. Stop. so hold on a yeah. minute. Can I just get something clear? Like your salary is euro based. Are you willing to yeah. transfer and take a currency risk by just keep it circulating through the U.S. dollar? Yes, because we, like there is no high interest savings accounts in Ireland because there are so oh. few banks. This is this is the issue is, yes, America has an awful lot of banks, so there's a lot of regulation that has to go on there. But because there are so many banks, they have insane competition. So we have great market opportunities because everyone's battling it out to get people's money in the door. So it's great for consumers. Like You get really awesome interest rates on savings accounts, which have no risk. Um, and the highest interest rate I've ever seen in Ireland is 0.65%. And I think the interest rate I have on my American savings account is 4%. Mm. Yeah, you so could, it's a you huge ex- difference. You could extend that to Irish financial products in general, and yeah. the Irish taxation system around it, and the lack of competition. And Emmett, <laughs> <laughs> you can keep going here. Yeah. Um, I'm, right, not bitter. I'm not bitter. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna cut this off here. And if I hear the word bank again, I think my brain is gonna explode. So if you're still listening to us after an hour of that, I'm impressed. Well done. Um, Thanks everyone for listening and thanks Amory and Emmett for joining me. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to leave us a review. 
Tell your friends about us. Sign up to Charge and Fearless. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.